Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Tommy. I'm Braden. And I'm Danae. And I'm wondering, where is the best destination that you would like to go to? Hmm. Um, I've always had Norway on my list. I like the, well, I'm, I'm an outdoorsy guy, so I like the the mountains and the fjords. Honestly, just like canoeing in the fjords sounds amazing, but I would be very afraid of uh, my boat tipping because it's technically uh, <laughs> technically the Arctic Ocean. So <laughs> that would be a bit scary. I have so many places I want to go. I'm having a hard time narrowing it down to like just one one place um like one of the first sorry share a few then like one of the first places that pops into my mind is is japan um like there's a huge and rich history of cars and auto racing and all that type of stuff so i would love to go there and just visit like start in the north and work south or vice versa and just visit every kind of landmark along the way that has anything to do with you know motor racing and things like that so i think it'd be really really cool to go there i also love like seafood and japanese cuisine and stuff like that so i have no problem eating whatever along the way so that would definitely be like up there um and then i think it'd be cool to go uh to germany as well because there's a lot of the same thing there a lot of very famous racetracks a lot of museums and like just the history of motorsport and stuff like that. So it'd be a toss up between those two, but I think Japan overall is more appealing just because it'd be, I think more different and, you know, more exciting. I'm getting fast and furious vibes from your answer, Tommy. Oh, I love the first movie. (laughs) I love the first movie, the whole series. I'm not a big fan of, but I do love the first movie and the third one. So those two are all right. Nice. Pretty much anything with race cars. Tommy's a fan of, uh, yeah, I'm a sucker for that. Shit, you should go see a Formula One race in like Kuala Lumpur or something. Hit up Malaysia. Yeah, they don't go there anymore, unfortunately. Oh, really? Yeah, that's oh, a that's bummer. Bad. That was a good track too. Good track, yeah. So, but that's me. Yeah, and that's why like Japan has the race there. So I'd love to be able to, you know, go there and and do stuff like that. Like, yeah, I oh I I'd, I'd love to travel the world and just watch every race. But need to, I need financial stability and then some for a year. Fair enough <laughs> to do that. What about you, Danae? Like, I know you've, you visited some uh, and lived in some very, you know, exotic and faraway places. And like, yeah. have you already been there, done that with your bucket list travel or is there still somewhere <laughs> you want to go? I mean, there's always places that I'd love to travel. I, I have been quite fortunate in my, you know, young age to have traveled to a lot of different countries or like you said, lived in um, quite a few places overseas. Um, but I would really, really like to visit South America. That's a continent I have never been to. Um, I think so far only South America and are the two continents I've never been to. Uh, so it'd be fun to be able to say that I've been to all seven. Um, I don't know if there's a specific place. I feel like Peru would be a nice place to visit. Um, lots of history and culture there. And then I would always love to go back to my stomping grounds kind of in Southeast Asia. Thailand is one of my favorite places to, to get away for like a beach vacation. It's absolutely gorgeous there. I love the food. 
uh, cuisine is fantastic and the people are so hospitable. So I really, really enjoy um, Thai, Thai culture as a whole. Yeah. That's, I didn't know that you've been everywhere, but South America, I'm not going to count. I know it's technically yeah. a continent, Antarctica, but I feel yeah. like most people don't go there. There's Arctic cruises though. Like you can take them. I, I'm pretty sure my dad would like to go on one. Cause I think that's one of the only continents he's not been to as well. Um, so I think that would be, I mean, it wouldn't be the most, it would be picturesque, but it wouldn't be uh, warm and sunny and pleasant. Uh, but it would be something to say that you've done it. <laughs> and I feel like maybe I'm wrong with it. Like I'm envisioning that would be a shorter trip. Yeah. Like once you've <laughs> kind of been there and you've seen it, there's, like, I don't feel like there's a lot of places to go visit there. Yeah. You gotta yeah. Go, like, yeah. yeah, go ahead, you, Braden. You got to go down to the tip of Chile and then take a, take a boat and you get them both in one go. Yeah. That yeah, would be, that idea. would be pretty sweet. That would be pretty sweet. Uh, I, I did really enjoy my time spent in Europe. Um, and Tommy Germany is lovely. Um, I would strongly recommend going lots of history there. And I would love to, go to like Portugal or Spain and enjoy some time there. Um, it's different when you're a college student on a shoestring budget versus yeah. when you're maybe a bit more established and can really take in a lot of uh, beautiful sights and scenes along the way. So I also figure I may have to get to Germany before they put a speed limit on the Autobahn. Yes. Cause you, they keep, you definitely will. they keep rumoring about that. And so maybe I have to scratch that off the bucket list first. So I don't uh, lose out on that yeah. experience. Now going on the Autobahn, would you like to be the one behind the wheel or the passenger? Because I've been a passenger on the Autobahn and it is terrifying. The first 10 minutes you feel so sick to your stomach because you're not used to driving that fast or being, sorry, being in a car that's going that fast. I feel like if you had a bit more control over the situation, it wouldn't be as nerve wracking. Oh, 100%. I want to be behind the wheel. Like 100%. That would be the only reason I want to go on the Autobahn. Totally. I don't even need a place to go. I just want to just drive, just get on there and. Um, and I do like to think of myself as like a, like a decent driver in the sense of like, at least here in the GTA and in Ontario, people are terrible with like the right middle and left lane and what they're supposed to be used for. Um, so I think I have a decent handle of, you know, faster traffic is to the left and the slower traffic is to the right. And you only move into the outside lane to pass and overtake somebody. And then you move back in. So um, a little bit of that is track etiquette too, you know, faster people on the outside and the slow joggers are on the inside. So you have to follow the rules. So I don't know. Did you notice that was like part of it as well? Like Honestly, that it was just yeah. so orderly and people actually followed the rules. It was surprising. Yeah. It was surprising how, how organized it was. Uh, it was still nerve wracking to be in the back seat going like 190 in a car. Like it's, <laughs> It is, yeah, it's wild, but I would say, yeah, the, the, there was, it felt like organized chaos a little bit. Like I felt chaotic, but everything else was organized. I remember when I was going through driver's ed and my instructor told a story to the class where he was in Germany on the Autobahn and in the left lane and going, you know, I don't have to ask, but whatever speed. And then there was someone like a hundred or 200 yards back with their blinker on to like on the left, but it's like, what is he doing? There's no, there's no lane over there. He can't be trying to change lanes. So then eventually figured it out. Like I should probably move over. And then that guy zoomed past. Um, so yeah, that just, to me, like that one story, like, I feel like that, you know, 
the the structure is really there and the respect and all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. Everybody knows how to drive the Autobahn. If you live in Germany, throw a North American there, there might be some, some learning curve moments, but yeah. I've also found in Quebec, they have it figured out. Like they tend to follow that rule. And especially when you're there with an Ontario plate, uh, then I feel like they're just waiting for you to like drive like somebody from Ontario and like cruise at 80 kilometers an hour in the left-hand lane. Cause they won't like, they won't overtake you on the right for the most part yeah. because that's the rules that they're taught that you only move into the left lane to pass somebody. So the idea of faster traffic coming at you from the right side is like not really a thing. Cause they tell you not to do that as we're here. Like you have to be head on a swivel because you have no idea when someone's going to try to fly by you on the shoulder, even like they just drive off the highway and speed past you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. Um, speaking of head on a swivel in a way, uh, <laughs> this is a, a bit of a bad transition, but, um, you know, we're, we're joined here, uh, by Danae who, um, is going to talk quite a bit about um, sports psych and mental skills. We're very excited to have her on. Um, and yeah, I'll just, I'll pass her, uh, pass it off to her to introduce herself and let everyone sure. know what's going on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting. This is my first podcast debut, um, spending time here with you guys. A little bit about my background. Right now, I'm based out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, I'm wrapping up my master's, uh, which is in sports psychology, and currently involved in a lot of different initiatives. Um, I'm a co-founding member of START, which is an initiative at the University of Alberta that supports their varsity sport teams, um, helping out with the mental performance side of things. And... That stands for Students and Athletes Rising Together. I should backtrack and just mention that. It's new. It's only about two years into its development. And with COVID, obviously, it's been challenging to navigate, you know, face-to-face -face time with athletes. But we're slowly building momentum. And it's neat to be a part of that uh, volunteer initiative, completely student-led. So we've got uh, faculty mentors and advisors that support us. But it's largely student-led. There's five of us on that team, or six of us, I should say, on that team. Um, all graduate students or alum. And then another thing that kind of keeps me busy these days is I'm a member of uh, the Feel Better training team. So Feel Better training is a business that seeks to help athletes develop resilience. You know, failure is a part of sport and life. Uh, all the best athletes make mistakes. It's inevitable in any, in any domain that's performance oriented, school, sports, honestly, business, life, anything. And so our mission and our passion is to really support individuals in navigating instances of failure, mistakes, uh, learning how to cope with those, developing skills and resources to better handle them in the, in the future, and also not make the same mistakes moving forward, right? If we can actually learn and grow from them, um, we set ourselves up for success as we continue on. So that's a bit about kind of like the professional side of where I'm at. Um, part of what got me into sports psychology uh, is a backtrack way. I wanted to go into physiotherapy when I first started my undergrad in kinesiology. Uh, and as I, even when I applied, I was interested in psychology. And as I continued on through my undergrad, every time I took a psych class, I thought, ah, this is the stuff. This is the stuff that I'm passionate about. 
Um, I find people's stories, their experiences uh, so fascinating and no, no two people are alike. And I think as I continued on, I loved anatomy and physiology courses. I thought that was something that I really wanted to, to kind of move into more of the rehab med side of things. But I had a lot of friends that were in the field and said, you know, kind of 10 years or so into it, you've kind of seen all the same things, unless you're keeping up on certifications, like it can get a little bit, um, a little bit monotonous. And so knowing that and knowing myself, I thought, you know what, I, with my kinesiology background and training, having worked um, a little bit in a clinic, all of what I'm able to currently do to help with treatment. I feel like is, is satisfied. I don't feel like I need to be the one putting in the IMS needles and, uh, you know, having, having more, more, uh, of a supporting role in that environment. It's people's experiences, their stories, um, their successes, their failures, navigating all of that, the mental and emotional side of life. That is my passion. And so I applied for masters in sports psych. And I guess here, here we are today. Um, getting ready to wrap up this program in the next little bit here and, and really sink my teeth into the field of sports psychology. And that's exciting that you, like you said, you're kind of, you're at the point right now where it's like, what's going to happen in the next, you know, next few years and kind of where are you going to go? And um, yeah, like I'm super happy that, and thankfully you were coming on the, on the show today to do this episode and um, just for the viewers to know, like we've, I was obviously in Edmonton as well mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, as you. And so we've, we've worked a little bit together on, on some things and I've seen you present on, on this topic. And that was why I thought like, Hey, this is, this would be great to bring to other coaches and other practitioners. And I've talked about this before with you, that it's one of those supplemental skills or supplemental components of training that sometimes gets forgotten about because everyone focuses so heavily on the technical and tactical elements of the sport that people forget about, you know, what happens from a nutrition side of things, what happens with sports psych or mental skills, what happens with strength and conditioning. They're all sort of, you know, part of that support team and sometimes get uh, forgot about. So I think it's important to get the knowledge and the, the resources out to coaches and to people in the field, because it can make a big difference. Your psychology and your mindset is a huge component of performing in sports. So yeah, super excited to have you come on and and share some info today. And I would, I would add quickly to that. Just, I think a lot of like this, at least from my perspective is a relatively new field and not like, if you look at the university setting, a lot of teams now have access to strength and conditioning, which is new in itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like nutrition and mental performance are like, they're just not really there. So the strength and conditioning coach ends up a lot of the time filling that role or, you know, individual sport coaches end up filling that role as well, you know, so it's, it's good for everyone to have at least a little bit of, of uh, understanding of what's going on there. Absolutely. Absolutely. An emerging field. Yeah. And I think one thing with an emerging field and like Braden talked about, sometimes people may need to know certain things about it. We, we kind of talked about the difference between, mental skills versus sports psychology, because I imagine there's some people and I, I definitely was probably guilty of it at some point where you use those terms kind of interchangeably, right? You say, Oh, mental skills, sports, like it's, it's the same thing, mm-hmm. but it, it's not necessarily the case. There's crossover and commonalities, but 
yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's an important thing to share. To yeah. Kind of get going. And, yeah. And I think Braden, you bring up the issue of scope, right? You know, if you're the SNC and your role is to do SNC for a team, but you end up filling a role around mental performance, mental training, that's kind of brings up the issue of scope. What is within my scope of practice? What is within the area of my expertise? And so I guess to clarify some terminology within the field, uh, to the best of my understanding, there might be others who would like to weigh in on this and have a more advanced perspective because of their years of experience and wealth of knowledge in the field. But from my experience so far, um, mental, mental performance training is really geared more towards the, the performance side of sport. So we talk about, you know, aspects of well-being with athletes, we can talk about uh, skills and techniques to really support their performance and get them to the, the point where they're unlocking their potential. But it's from, uh, it's from a perspective of there's already a level of stability, I think, in their life is maybe a good way of putting it. When, it's, when it comes to more mental health matters, uh, that is something that would be outside of the scope of a mental performance consultant, unless they are trained in sports psychology or unless they're trained in psychology, I should say. So the term psychologist is a registered term. So when someone says, oh yeah, that's a mental performance consultant and they try to use the same word, oh, that's a, or that's a sports psychologist. That's where it's problematic because the term psychologist is regulated. That requires different schooling with clinical practice and loads of hours spent under supervision of, of registered psychologists who can mentor you and requires additional examinations. So I'm very careful when I walk into a sport performance setting to, I don't even call myself right now. I'm, I'm not a registered mental performance consultant. So that's something that you need to get designation through ASP, which is the Applied Association of Sports Psychology or the Canadian uh, version of that is the CSPA, the Canadian Sports Psychology Association, and they have a mental performance consultant uh, title that is also becoming more registered, becoming more regulated. Um, ASP and the CSPA are trying to align with their requirements for individuals in mental performance consulting, but psychology is a separate, a separate designation that requires a separate skill set um, that can deal more with the, the clinical side of mental health and well-being. So think about mental performance consultants. They work on athletes or work with athletes on things like confidence, goal setting, um, down-regulating strategies for managing nerves and competition, attention, focus, all those sorts of skills. Uh, and they might do a little bit of help with supporting an athlete in managing being a student athlete and the dual roles that come into play there. But anything that starts to bridge and move more into the mental health perspective, anxiety, depression, um, eating disorders, that's something that requires additional clinical experience and, and regulation of that field. So right now, because I'm not even a mental performance consultant yet, I'm working towards it. I call myself a mental performance trainer. Uh, anybody can be a trainer. Um, so mental performance trainer, mental performance coach is something what you, some, some, some of the times what you will see when athletes, um, you know, want to work with you and you're trying to figure out how to navigate kind of those titles within the field. That's something that you might see being referred to. So separate fields, different. some people are dual trained, like some people have the skills and expertise and education to be mental performance consultants and they go back and 
continue their education either at the master's level or the PhD level to become registered psychologists. And they are dual trained. That's something that I hope to do in the future. Uh, but I need to work for a little bit first, get my feet wet before revisiting academia. So that's a little bit of the distinction between the two. Hopefully that can help clear up, clarify or clear up some of those misunderstandings. Well, I didn't know about the, the certified or registered like mental skills consultant or specialist, um, yeah. which I think is, is good for people in the field to know, because if you're like a high performance director, you're somebody in charge of like assembling a team of individuals, you know, you is your coach sport coach certified through the NCCP or some other country's equivalent is your, you know, athletic therapist or your team doc. Have they gone through, you know, whatever, and is your strength coach certified? And now the same idea that there's, like you said, kind of these, I guess, different tiers of individuals in, in mental skills. Are they fully registered psychologists with that background? And then they're working in sport. Are they registered as a mental skills consultant or are they a trainer or something else? Or Mm -hmm. I think that's an important, I didn't know about that other than the psychologist. So I think that's a good thing for people in the field to know uh, just so that way you kind of know what to look for, what letters or designations like kind of actually mean what. Yeah. So if you're really wanting, if you are, if you are, you know, a director of performance for an organization, you're wanting to get someone who has a level of credentials or credibility. If you're looking for somebody in the mental performance realm in the U S you're looking for somebody that's the MPC behind their name. So a certified mental performance consultant that's through ASP. And then right now the CSPA um, their designation is an MPC, so a mental performance consultant. And I think eventually as the field within Canada grows, there is going to be more of a partnership with ASP. It's something that's in the works. Uh, I don't think it's completely established yet. I think it's something that's rolling out this year. Uh, eventually those of us in Canada can also be credentialed under that CMPC letters through ASP. So that's, that's what you're looking for. Um, and I think part of why there's extra confusion within the realm of mental performance training or sports psychology is because mental performance training is quite a mouthful. So people just try to shorten it down and say sports psychology or sports psychologist. And we're trained in that field. Like the, the field is called sports psychology or, and or mental performance education background. You're learning the same theories. You're learning a lot of the same course content but it comes down to the term. So psychologist is registered consultant is, you know, it's a different credentialing system. And then I think lastly, I'll add within mental performance, it's not just uh, an important field within sport, but within business, within any performance domain. So you think about life coaching. And I think that's also where there's maybe some muddy, muddy waters or muddying of distinction between How much are you trained to help with? I feel like life coaching is an even less regulated field than what mental performance is. So I think that's maybe where we get a little bit of the muddying of waters. Yeah. But I think, yeah, it's it's super important to point out the, yeah, the distinction and and the scope and the education that goes into it, because um, I think somebody could look for, yeah, somebody with this CMPC or um, sure if I'm getting the letters wrong, but 
the and then that's our sports like person that's great and then someone comes in and you know they are a fantastic athlete but they have yeah super like bad performance anxiety or eating disorders whatever it's like go see the sports psych and then this person doesn't have the clinical training and then they can't actually you know handle that case so right right and i should mention so you're absolutely right it is a little bit of a problematic or precarious scenario to be put in but I will say if the mental performance consultant for a team is the most equipped to facilitate a referral, that's a fantastic recommendation from the coach or, or from another athlete to say, hey, go talk to Danae or go talk to whoever else is filling that role on a team because everyone who, who goes through the education and training, and it requires a master's degree to be a, a CMPC or an MPC, so it still requires a level of expertise um, yeah, we can help facilitate the referral for that athlete. So we're, we're, we're not trained to help with the nitty gritty of things, but we're more than happy to facilitate a referral for that athlete to get them into the, the office or, you know, the relationship with somebody who can, can help like a trained therapist. And we might still work in tandem. So if an athlete has developed strong rapport with us and, they then disclose something that is more of a serious mental health nature and it becomes apparent that we need to facilitate a referral. If that athlete meets with the psychologist and they're working on that mental health consideration, but they still want support within the performance environment, we can kind of work in tandem, however much that athlete wants to, you know, disclose what they speak about with their therapist and myself or whoever. So you can kind of work in a, in a triad, depending on if the athlete is interested and open to that uh, approach to care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's multiple members in the, in the team, obviously everyone's, everyone's doing their bit. Um, I think now is probably a good time to get into the specific like skills and strategies and, and things that you deal into unless Tommy had anything else to say about that stuff. No, no, I think it, that's the right call to kind of explore some of the, like what mental skills do you actually like do athletes actually work on? Because I think that's probably another one. That, no idea. Yeah. Or people assume like, this is a mental skill. Like, you know, the following word when it's like, okay, no, that's maybe not the right term or it means something different. I could see the same sort of confusion taking place around like the regulation side as well, where, you know, something, a blanket term such as like mental toughness. Yeah. Like, do people even know what that is or, you know, it exists in different forms and things like that. So again, I think it'd be great to hear like, what are some of the mental skills that you, you work on with athletes or some of the more common skills that you come across or teach, or do you bring it to them? Do they bring it to you? Like maybe how some of that works too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first off, these are fantastic questions and I'll, I'll give a brief overview. And like I said, if there's anything that sticks out to you and you want to hear more, or there's, there's mental skills that you've heard and you're like, I don't really know what that is, but maybe we can discuss that for sure. Bring, bring it up here. Uh, I think there's some like glamorous, you know, mental skills. We think about mental toughness or grit or all those sorts of things. But honestly, the foundation for all mental skills training is self-awareness. If an athlete doesn't know what is problematic for them, like if they're prepping for a competition and they're overwhelmed with performance anxiety or their, their heart is like beating in their chest and they don't know how to calm themselves down or down regulate 
that's a problem. But if they're not aware of that, then they also don't address the problem, right? We can't, we can't solve or work with the problems that we don't know exist, even if they're there. So drawing athletes' attention to their body, uh, how they're feeling, what their thoughts are before, during, after competitions, before, during, after practices, those are really, really important skills to set the foundation for working on some of the more, I don't know, glamorous or sexy skills, <laughs> uh, like confidence and mental toughness and stuff like that. So self-awareness is a big one. doesn't matter the age. Um, we work with youth athletes. We can work with, you know, varsity level athletes, and it doesn't matter the age self-awareness is still the foundation. So once there's a level of self-awareness, so this is like mindfulness, you can think about self-awareness with journaling. That's a great way to have like even a training log, something you keep in your gym locker. When you get ready for practice, you can check them with your body. You can rate yourself on one to 10. How does my body feel or use verb descriptors? Um, you know, what was hard about my competition the other night or that game, I made a mistake and then I spiraled, write that down, become aware of your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. And then I'd say from there, my approach is to work with athletes on the skills that they feel they need the most support with. Um, I want to tailor my efforts to where their need is. And I feel like if there is a mismatch between what I think is important and what they think is important, they're not going to get a lot out of that. So I would flip it back to them and ask, you know, what is your background with mental performance training or mental skills training? What have you tried before? What has worked? What hasn't worked? What are areas of your performance that you feel need some additional support that you would like to learn more about? And then we'll kind of continue the discussion from there. Um, with the, <clears throat> the self-awareness piece, that makes so much sense for sure. You know, you have to wrong first um and i can see that being important for regardless of the age but my experience with working with younger athletes and um, i'm not asking about how they're feeling mentally but how they're feeling physically like it's super hard i feel for kids i mean at least high school age kids and then sometimes the young kids talk so much but the high school kids don't say anything you know mm -hmm. and just helping them um yeah i guess how would you, how would the approach to getting them um, to become more self-aware to disclose those kinds of things be different between um, different age of kids and then like university pro athletes, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so challenging because there's a lot that we can do with the athletes, but it also boils down to the environment. You know, if an environment is, I'll use a youth, I'll use a youth sport example that I was a part of, and this environment was, um, we worked with athletes that were age six to 12 and then 12 to 20. So pretty large spread of athletes. Um, I was kind of like a junior consultant working uh, with a more experienced individual. And for, for athletes age six to 12, like their minds are all over the place. And so to help promote awareness of what positive sport experiences feel like, and also the challenging ones feel like, I ask them to think about like their superhero self. So when they walk into the gym and they feel like their superhero self, what does that feel like? And they'll say like, oh, I feel confident. I feel um, capable. I feel strong or I feel happy. These are all descriptors that kind of describe their ideal bodily sensations and maybe emotions that they want to feel in the sport environment. 
And then I asked them, you know, when you make a mistake or when you're struggling, you're not having the best day in the gym, what does that feel like? They might say, I feel sad. I feel scared, fearful. I feel, um, yeah, some of those types of descriptors. I feel, I feel weak. And you can kind of help gear them towards checking in with themselves when they walk into the gym. Hey, do you feel like superhero self today? How can we get you feeling like your superhero self? Oh, well, I love doing this in my warm up, or I love doing this type of a stretch, or I like to talk to my friend beforehand or something like that. You can just get the conversation rolling a little bit with them. And then when it comes to the older athletes, I find in the sport environment, if coach critique comes immediately after uh, a rep, it's very hard for the athlete to check in with themselves before moving on. So if they, I mean, you're in powerlifting. So if somebody is making an attempt at a weight and immediately after they have a failed attempt, you give them what they need to improve on. You're telling them they're not coming up with that on their own. So having a pause and asking them, how did that rep feel? And they're like, Oh man, I had to bail on it or um, my, my legs, my snatch wasn't great or something like that. Whatever is most relevant in your sport. Um, soccer is my main background, so I can think more about examples in sport, but having an opportunity to first ask the athlete, how did that feel? What did you notice? That creates a space for self-awareness and they might not have an answer right away. They might be like, I don't know. Well, that <laughs> is, if weird. you ask them anything about yeah. anything they do, that yeah. is one of the most common, especially from high school kids. Like, how did that one feel? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like, okay. it, it, felt, right. it felt weird. Okay. What part of it felt weird? Like, this is something that if athletes can't think for themselves, you need to help them. You need to help them become able to think for themselves by being inquisitive and ask them the questions that they don't know how to ask themselves. So if you ask, how did that rep feel? Like, I don't know. Like, okay, well, let's talk about it. Like, how did, how did, how did the first phase of that go? Um, felt weird. Okay. What made it felt, what made it feel weird? I, I didn't have my weight over the, you know, proper part of my foot, something like that. Right. Or I wasn't in a full set position before I made the attempt, just start asking those questions, creating that space between an attempt and the feedback, because it's in that space. Like I said, that athletes are able to start to think for themselves. And it might be like pulling teeth off the front end uh, as a coach, but the skill set that you're helping develop in those moments will help your athletes long after you've stopped coaching them and not just in sport, but in life. Cause they can ask themselves the same question in their, in their studying for an exam, or they get their, their mark back on an exam. And they're like, oof, that didn't go out. I thought, I wonder why, oh, maybe cause I didn't studying like weeks in advance. I tried to cram it the night before I didn't have a good sleep. I was stressed. I couldn't think clearly on my exam. I'm going to try something different next time. So those are, those are kind of how I would maybe address working with youth athletes. You got to think on your feet. You got to be creative. Um, they'll throw you curveballs. Kids say the darndest things. That was a show. <laughs> and it's true. Um, and then as far as working with the high school athletes or that junior high level and up, it's a lack of awareness and being inquisitive and curious about their experience, creating that space between an attempt and feedback, I think is really critical in developing awareness. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like the the superhero thing for sure. Like I, I feel like every little kid can identify with that and just something that they they can attach like meaning to, which is great. And then yeah, yeah for sure, helping uh, kids that don't have language like develop that kind of a language for sure mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, I would say this is not my area of specialty. Like working with kids is not my area of specialty. There's probably a lot more informed mental performance consultants that specialize with uh, youth athletes that have a better awareness of the developmental stages, like cognitively and emotionally, and can tailor the appropriate mental skills for that age. So that's something to, to keep in mind as well. I think the beauty of the, the concept, though, of, like you said, providing some sort of space between the event and the feedback is that it can be used in any kind of sporting context, even not even sporting context, any context of the learning Mm -hmm. period. Um, So I think that's something where, you know, whether or not you're a, you know, mental skills consultant or sports psychologist or a sport coach or a strength coach, all of these individuals, you're providing feedback to the athletes and the individuals you're working with of some kind. So even for myself in the weight room or out on the track with somebody, I can like pause for a moment ask Mm -hmm. a question instead Mm -hmm. of providing feedback and and be able to use that, that tactic or that, that method of delivering feedback and getting the athlete to become more self-aware, whether or not I'm a, you know, a registered psychologist or a mental skills uh, consultant or something Mm -hmm. like that. That's still like a, I guess a, a method or a tactic I can use to improve my coaching. Yeah, it's a it's a very tangible thing that will help facilitate your athlete's growth and development. And I think, Tommy, you bring up a good point, and that's something that I'm working hard, especially right now in my thesis, to kind of get that point across. Is every single person in an athlete's sporting environment plays a role in facilitating their growth and development. So you, as a coach, creating that space, inquisitive of your athlete that's you playing your part and supporting my work that I would do with the athlete, maybe in that sporting setting or in a classroom setting, doing psychoeducation classes or working on specific mental skills. But every single person has a role to play athletes, teammates, uh, you as a coach, creating that space, interacting with them, maybe the coach and the mental performance trainer or mental performance consultant using the same language that definitely helps support clarity and, and growth and development in that environment as well. Yeah. One thing I did want to ask just, and I'm a, Braden knows this, I'm a visual person. I sure, love yeah. my charts and diagrams and, and whatever. And so you had talked about kind of self-awareness being the, like the underpinning mm-hmm. of everything that you do within, you know, mental skills. And it was interesting because I saw a, an infographic from a different university elsewhere in the country that was around how to like implement mental skills. And they also had the number one thing as like self-awareness, almost like that, like you said, was the foundation, but then it was a very linear pathway Mm. of once you have self-awareness, then you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, like a, I don't want to call it like a traditional stages of learning, but a very linear approach. One thing to the next is where what I'm getting from you is I'm thinking it's almost like a, like a tree branch or like a a webbing out type of 
shape or diagram where self-awareness is that is the trunk of the tree or the middle. And then once you have that, it's like, do you want to go this way? Do you want to go that way? There's a number of branches you can, you can take. And is that maybe, would that be an accurate way of how you're describing it? Yeah, I would say, yeah, I feel like oftentimes we'll see the the pyramid kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We'll see within sports, like you might see self-awareness as a foundation. And then yeah, that was exactly what I saw. It was a pyramid right? shape and self-awareness yeah. was at the bottom. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that conveys the idea of foundational learning. And I think that's excellent. The way I, the way I envision a diagram and similar to how you were kind of envisioning, maybe like a tree, I would see almost like self-awareness as this massive circle or this environment in which all these other skills are present. So you want to think of a big circle with self-awareness that's the environment. And then you have confidence, you have focus, you have attention, you have, you know, self-compassion, mental toughness, whatever. You've got all these different skill sets within the environment of self-awareness. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and then what I, I wanted to get into, what are like the top things that you feel, I mean, I'm sure you're going to say that they're all super important for performance, but um what are the top things that you need the most help with? Like, what's the most common thing that people need help with? Um, or, or maybe what you think is the most, like the most important thing for success after or the self-awareness. A common ask. Like what's the, the word people ask. ask you about the most? I yeah. Guess. Okay. Common, common ask is a good one. I don't know if I could, you know, stake my hat on the most important. I feel like it all depends on the context, the individual, their needs. Um, but I will often get asked about confidence and especially now that we've had a hiatus from sports for a little while, and we're slowly getting back into competition. Some athletes haven't competed in a year and a half, two years. So that's something that coming back into a performance setting, those nerves are heightened right away because it feels like I've had all this time to train. So the pressure is on in their mind. They're like, ah, I've had all this time to train. This is my first comp back. I I need to go out and kill it. Right. Like I need to go out and execute. Um, or they're thinking, I need to be at the same level that I was a year and a half ago, right? So they're comparing themselves to their old self or their past performance. So I think definitely coming into this season of sport, confidence is the one I get asked about a lot. And the good news is confidence is something that you can develop. It's something that you can work on in a lot of different ways. You know, I mean, you'll know this, trust your training, right? If you put in the reps, you put in the effort, you can look back on your progress in your training and you can be proud of how far you've come and feel confident going into a competition that's something that you can work on um there's a lot of other ways to build confidence the environment plays a large role in facilitating confidence as well you know the the ways in which a coach would speak to an athlete or the way that your teammates help kind of lift you up and encourage you along the way and there's like i said there's a lot of things that you can do for yourself confidence resume you know noting all of your accomplishments or some of your most um, proud moments in sport, whether they were successful or not, maybe you handle really, really challenging dynamic, like a, a meet being canceled or, you know, a game being called at a tie and then having to come back in and actually play extra time to figure out who's going to win. And you need to pivot and swivel reset. So those are all, you know, ways that athletes can maybe draw from their past experiences of, navigating challenging situations, bringing that into the current moment and, ha- and having confidence in that. Yeah. Yeah. So confidence is the, is the big one. And then 
or a big one, I guess you get asked about. And I think, you know, when, when I think about some of the work you do with, you know, fail better, the idea of, I was about to say bouncing back, but I was going to say bouncing <laughs> forward Nice. Um, as per what I was told in the presentation. Uh, yeah. is a, and yeah. I do like that term way better than bouncing yeah. back, bouncing forward. Yeah. But this idea of like resiliency or the ability to come back mm-hmm. from something or manage or handle an, an unexpected yeah. outcome. I'm sure that's another kind of common one that that comes up like, Hey, I didn't have a great game or I'm not feeling, yeah, you know, like yeah. uh, I panicked and then I yeah. didn't know what to do. W- yeah. What can I do to, you know, keep my head in the game and, and stay focused. Yeah. And I think I, you're absolutely right. Bouncing forward is important. And we can get into a little bit more about that. I shared an analogy during that webinar and I can share that on this podcast as well. I think resilience is something that it's, it's developed and it, it takes time. Um, you, you can't, you can't only experience success within sport and also develop resilience. Like resilience has to, has to come from recovering from adversity, right? Like adversity is almost like a prerequisite for developing resilience. So if you've got massively successful athletes, but they've never struggled, they're successful, but they're not resilient. So you might ask yourself, what athlete do you want on your team? you know, if something shakes the foundation of a successful athlete and they've never coped with that before, that can be quite problematic. And that's where I think a lot of us within the sport performance realm want to give athletes the resources to manage those moments. So when I think of resilience, I think there's a lot of different other mental skills that come into play in that moment. You mentioned like, you know, maybe I didn't perform as well as I wanted to. And that leads me down the thought process of, is that athlete now ruminating about that? Are they dwelling on their mistakes and they don't know how to nip that in the bud and move forward? So that's a skill set, managing rumination or negative self-talk. So there's a lot of other skills within mental performance training that I think help set athletes up to develop real resilience and be able to enact it in a, in a moment. Um, when I think about coping well or bouncing, bouncing forward, I like to use the analogy of uh, a slinky. So when I think of bounce back, I think of a rubber band, you can stretch it, but it comes back to its original shape. When I think about bouncing forward, I think about a slinky. So a slinky is stretched and then it kind of condenses on itself, but then it keeps moving. It propels you for forward. So when you've got a failure experience or you've made a mistake, there's a setback in your sport career and you're able to acknowledge it, feel the emotion, acknowledge that this is a painful moment. This is a a struggle. I, I, you know, acknowledge it for what it is without judgment. And then you're able to think about, okay, well, what can I take from this experience moving forward? Yeah, no, I'm not going to try that before I meet next time. Or I know I'm not going to try that before I lift next time. Be inquisitive. It requires a level of, um, a level of obviously awareness, acceptance of the moment, and then a little bit of inquisitiveness around what can I take from this thing moving forward? And then, and then you make that up and you move forward and you might still experience a similar struggle or a related struggle next time. And it's the same process. Acknowledge it. Cause I feel like within sport culture, a challenge is we suppress it. We don't want to acknowledge that we failed. We don't want to acknowledge making a mistake. I think that's largely because we feel shame. We feel a lot of guilt and we feel a lot of shame about having made a mistake or flubbed up something. Right. So I think 
suppressing doesn't help us actually move through it and learn from it. We just kind of grit and bear it. And eventually the emotion from that experience will probably rear its ugly head and you've got a bigger beast to deal with. But if you're able to acknowledge, okay, I didn't perform as successfully as I wanted. If I think about myself in soccer, um, say I make a bad pass and it's a turnover and it doesn't lead to something that I need to like address right away. If it's a, it goes out of bounds or the ball bounces off me and I give up a corner kick to the opponent. Acknowledge, shoot, that's unfortunate. That happened. Okay. How can I learn from this moving forward? I'm going to angle my body so that it goes out the sideline instead of the back line moving forward. And I'll have a little moment. I'll take a deep breath and then I'll, and then I'll move on. So I'm not letting that thing linger. You have to acknowledge it for what it is. It sucks, but you can't stay there. And so there's lots of skill sets with self-talk frames of mind that we can employ in those moments, but they need to be developed kind of ahead of time in order to enact them in that moment to, to move forward and actually bounce forward from a situation. Yeah, I do. I do super, super like the whole um, bounce forward idea. I try to, when my, when my clients, um, it's very easy for them to, to feel that they've gone backwards in their powerlifting journey. Cause like you want the numbers to go up, not down. So if they're going down, I'm taking a step back and it's, um, I try my best to tell them like, yes, it feels that way, but this is the next step on your journey. And then the next step is forward. So it's, you're always moving forward. It's always progress, you know, but sometimes, you know, you're going to have to like, the next step is a step down before like two steps up kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, progress is not linear as much as the sport world and culture and honestly, innovation would tell you, you know, success is up and to the right. It, it's not, it's not a linear path, even the most. And this is what I told, I worked with track athletes not too long ago. And I told them, you think Usain Bolt was looking for PBs at every single meet. And when you're a youth athlete, and you're not as experienced, you're looking for those PBs. You're expecting them at every single meet because you haven't hit your like ceiling effect of your growth curve and learning technically. And so you think, you know, I just need to keep getting better and better and better, but it's not true. Like he's periodized his whole program around phases of growth and, you know, pushing the envelope on his time. But then, yeah, so I think it's important to acknowledge. And, you know, I've talked with youth athletes about this, but growth is not linear it's not up into the right success is not up into the right within sport. I think that's um, an illusion that sport culture tries to portray. And so I think acknowledging that depending on the phase of your growth or your development or your periodization of your program, you're not going to, you're not going to pull the numbers right with your athletes, Braden, like they're not going to be pulling the numbers that they think they should be pulling. And honestly, that's par for the course. If they're constantly succeeding and surpassing and surpassing what they've previously done, I almost would be holding my breath because eventually they're going to burn out. Right. You gotta, you kind of want to see this ebb and flow. Um, so that, that's what I would say. It is, it is challenging. It's something that I think culturally requires pushing back against because the narrative in sport is always strive for success. It's of the utmost importance, always strive to better your performance. And yeah, you need to work hard and push for that, but you can't get bummed out and mad at yourself that you're a human with limitations. Like that's part of life. You're not going to always succeed. And so it's how do we work within those feelings of uncomfortability around failure, uh, around, you know, not meeting your expectations or your best performance. That's really important. And then, yeah. And then you mentioned that if an athlete hasn't 
um, developed those skills of resilience and, and things like that, then when they do encounter a setback or, you know, a, a flub in the game or whatever, um, they aren't able to use those skills because they haven't developed them. Um, so then, yeah, I guess what is, what is the first step for them to, to go down that path? Yeah, I, it's a great question. And it's something that I feel like each consultant or each individual would have their own approach. But I think the first thing that is important to acknowledge is they've come to the right place, right? If they're in a, a season of struggle or a performance slum and they're finally reaching out for help and they, they've come to you, regardless of whether they have the skills to cope with that or not, you can work with them. And it might require a little bit of extra legwork on your part to kind of help get them caught up to speed really working at that awareness, um, asking questions of their experience, being inquisitive, but there's lots of things that you can still do to work with them in that moment. And Braden, I also want to speak to this point because I think it's important. The earlier we can get these coping skills and resources in athletes' hands, the better they are for the rest of their sport experiences. And I'd say the better they're able to handle the stresses and pressures of life as well. So it's something that me and my colleagues are very passionate about working with youth athletes to give them the mental skills training that they need to, to kind of cope with the facts that they will encounter in sport. It's inevitable. Eventually they'll come up against some barriers. So helping young athletes develop these is really important to support their overall growth. And then I also wanted to mention too, so often we look at sports psychology or mental performance from a deficit approach. Athletes see you when they're struggling. And that's challenging because I think it perpetuates this stigma around somebody coming to speak to me. And I know that we're working hard um, around kind of addressing stigma and, and kind of lessening it within sport of going and seeing somebody for help. And it's no different than going to a physio to get a tune up on your body or going to a doctor to get a medical checkup, like go and talk to your mental performance consultant to like hone in on some skills. So rather than seeing it from even that type of an approach, looking at it from a proactive perspective of you can always optimize your performance. You can always become a little bit better at stress or a little bit better at coping with pressure. And if we can help athletes see that anybody can benefit from it, then I feel like that also helps lessen the, the kind of stigma around going and seeing someone because Maybe my teammates going and talking to someone because they're killing it already and they want to get even better. And that's excellent for my, myself as a teammate. Like it's going to make our whole team better that our star player is going and asking, how can they even, how can they get even better? And just because someone's talking to a mental performance consultant, like I said, doesn't mean that they're, that they're struggling. It could be for a completely different reason. So I think really generating awareness around anyone can benefit from these types of skill sets and mindsets is really important moving forward. And the physical side of it's such a good comparison yeah. because especially the first thing I thought of was like sport massage. Yeah. Like so many people will go to see somebody for a massage, like you said, to, you know, tune up or to, you know, oh, I just, I want to make sure I'm ready to go. I want to make sure I'm primed for a big session tomorrow or a big competition coming up yep. and nobody thinks anything of that. No, nobody thinks that's a bad thing. Nobody thinks, Oh, they're, they're not actually prepared. They need to go do this thing to be prepared. Now I'm worried about them. People just think, Oh no, that person is making sure they're ready to go. And it's, like, it, it's applauded or praised if you do that. But like you said, it's not always the same with kind of the mental yep. skills. It has this deficit 
kind yeah. of assumption to it, which I think is that begins to get removed. Like yeah. you said, it's no different than training in the weight room or training for your sport or you're developing yeah. skills, you're developing abilities that you can use no. to be better. Yeah. Simply and and I think, yeah, simply put, simply put. And I think the same is, is true when you look at it from a building perspective, like you need a preseason where you're in the weight room to develop the strength, to actually compete at your best. If an athlete has failure experience in a game and the coach is berating them because they didn't have the coping skills to deal with that, that they haven't developed in the training room, <laughs> you can't get mad at them. Like it takes the same amount of time and effort put into training mental skills like focus or attention or self-talk or goal setting, visualization, imagery. These are all skills that need time to develop. And so this is something that I say, and I think I said it, Tommy, to, to you and your, your cohort of athletes uh, with track is if you try something and it doesn't work the first time you tried it, don't be like, oh yeah, this stuff is garbage. Like it's not for me. You couldn't lift like that if you started, you know, from scratch it's a baseline, you know, having a conversation and asking what are the areas that you want to improve in? This is like your baseline fitness test, mental fitness test. And then from there, you can create a plan for how to really support this athlete in, in tailoring efforts that will best suit them in their struggle. And that takes time, effort, repetition, <laughs> doing it when you don't want to do it sometimes. And eventually you will work up the mental muscle of being able to you know, come in clutch in the moments of pressure in a, in a sport competition or a game. And I think that's something that is important. Like we have expectations of athletes or even of ourselves to, to really, really cope well with the pressure. But if we've not allowed them to develop the skill set to cope well with that pressure, it's an unfair ask. You wouldn't ask somebody to do a one RM at X weight and, and see how that flies if they haven't done the training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. That's, that's a really, that's a, that's an amazing point. Honestly, like, um, you, you can't, yeah, like everything takes practice, literally everything in the world takes practice to get good at it. Um, you know, and, and like, we obviously deal a lot with like movement patterns and things like that. We help people, we select an appropriate stress and then try to teach them how to deal with that stress, you know, mm -hmm. through their movement and things like that. Um, but you know, if someone's not working with a mental performance professional, they're constantly being thrown stresses and having no guidance as to how to deal with them. And some people for sure are going to stumble into amazing skill sets. You know, you like, we would see people who stumble into an amazing squat pattern or amazing lunge pattern or whatever. Um, you know, but then there's going to be people, most people are just going to do their best and whatever their best is, is going to end up being kind of messy and it needs to get yeah. cleaned up. Yeah. And, and I'd argue those athletes who would stumble into great coping skills or, um, or great movement patterns, they did so like in spite of your lack of guidance or your lack of like ability to create an environment that would support it. And that is remarkable. That is not the norm. <laughs> and so I think that's an important thing to acknowledge too. Like I said, Tommy, everybody plays a role in facilitating this. If coaches are asking these types of things from their athletes, they need to create an environment with the appropriate professionals to support athletes in developing those skill sets. If they want athletes to develop strength, they bring on an SNC. If they want athletes to develop coping skills to manage pressure within sport, because that's an area of struggle for them, 
bring in an MPC, bring in a CMPC, but to ask that of your athletes without creating the environment and giving them the support personnel to develop those skills and attributes is kind of an unfair ask if you, yeah, if we're being really honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, it would be great to talk a little bit about like, cause now we're almost getting into some like scenarios of, you know, we, how do we develop self-awareness? How do we develop confidence or resiliency or these, these different abilities? And I think it'd be great to get into some scenarios of like, what does it actually look like, like on the ground or from an application standpoint of, you know, what you do working with these, these athletes. So I don't know if this now becomes a two-parter in the <laughs> sense where we've covered a little bit of the bases now. And it like, I don't know about like Braden, you probably have some examples you can think of, of like, ah, what was it the sticking point with this person? Or, you know, I can think of a number of times where I've gotten stuck with an athlete. I'm like, I don't know what to like, w- what's holding them back. And today, I mean, that's what you do. You know, you, you help people get through those, th- those points. So I don't know if that means we need a, a part two or we kind of go over some scenarios and specifics of maybe what it looks like or what the expectations are. If you decide as an athlete or a coach or anyone in the sport to take on, you know, working through mental skills, kind of what it looks like uh, mm-hmm. from that standpoint. I'd love to be able to help facilitate some of that, um, you know, that process of walking through what that would look like. And if there are listeners on this podcast that have scenarios that you want to see, yeah, work through them like bring them bring them in would love to discuss them kind of like how i would tailor my efforts to the athletes needs i want to tailor my efforts to best support your audience uh, of professionals in and around the sport field so if there are specific scenarios that you want to see walk through let's do it well yeah and we always talk on this show Braden, about it depends yeah and it's hard to give an answer to something that is it depends when you don't have the context of the scenario that the answer is dependent on. So I think that it can also help give some clarity to, like I said, sort of exactly what people would, you know, what are their expectations? How does this actually look in practice? Mm-hmm. Cause there may also be some disconnect there. If people think, Oh, this is what I think of mental skills training looking like when in reality it might, it might look a different way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'd be thrilled to have you come back for, a second part and kind of dive into examples and specifics of what it would all look like. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Um, but first I left you have... a really, really tough way to transition out of this. No, one, this is fine. Cause I'm just going to say, but first we have to talk about music. We can't end the show without talking about music. <laughs> just that was the easy, <laughs> that's the easiest one. Yeah. Yeah. No mental gymnastics there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that was clever that was yeah, clever thank you um so i don't know if i don't know if tommy mentioned this tonight but we always end the show talking about the music that we're listening to now or in general you know guests it's usually in general because you don't have the pressure to come up with something new every week but um yeah what do you like to listen to in training or do you play music while you're working with somebody or you know there's any any kind of situation yeah uh, good question. Yes. Tommy did let me know that there would be a music question and him and I both share passion for music. Uh, you can see the guitar in the background. I was, so I was going to comment. I, uh, I, I love music. Uh, I'm a singer myself. Um, so that's my probably instrument of choice if I'm 
doing that, but I have picked up guitar a little bit along the way. And I have some concert band experience from my high school days. Music that I'm listening to right now, when I study, I like instrumental, lo-fi, something like that. Study chill music. I can't work if there are words because (laughs) then I sing along. So that's the problem. Uh, Or if it's a song that I that I know and it's instrumental, I might hum along to. So I got to be careful with listening to music while I work. Typically for my best focus, uh, I like to think of focus as a pie chart. It's a limited resource. So if I have music in there, I'm not going to be working as effectively. So I try to, I try to kind of keep music out of my workspace when I'm training at the gym or working out. I love music definitely helps get some reps in, or if I'm running, having a certain beat that I'm running to cadence definitely helps. So genre wise, I don't know. I'm pretty easy. Um, pretty, pretty much a lover of all music genres, maybe not country. So, so much. There's a select few country artists that I will listen to, but I, uh, (laughs) Tommy, Tommy, not a country fan either. Can't stand country. Yeah. Everybody always says I'm not picky about genre except for country. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So yeah, not a huge fan of country, but I love, you know, R&B, pop, soul, that type of a, of a flair, a little bit of funk and jazz as well. Um, Funk is good. Funk is underrated. Funk is good. Yeah. Very underrated. And then, yeah, I don't know specific songs. I could probably bring them to the next one, but I think we'll, I think we'll keep it. We'll keep it with genres for this time. I don't want to disclose too much of my music tastes off the front front end. <laughs> um, this, well, on, not that much. I haven't listened to very much music lately, but um, I've been in the gym more. Um, it's a boxing gym. Um, so a lot of the time they're playing some like 90s, 2000s rap. Um, so that's been fun. I do really enjoy that genre. So it's, it's been fun to get back into that. And then, uh, that also reminded me of the Super Bowl halftime show, which I don't know if either of you watched that, but I thoroughly enjoyed the the halftime show this year. So, yeah. I called the first song. I I called that. I had a friend that was posting about on social media, what, which, which song is going to be first knowing the lineup of artists. And I, I called that one. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. I got it. Like, I don't get why everybody was ripping on 50 for showing for being up upside down. upside down because that's how we started <laughs> in the music, music video. video. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was 100% paying homage to like the totally. original. So a bunch oh. of the kids that I coach here, like they weren't even probably alive when that song came out or when music videos were a thing yeah. and they were all like making fun of it. I was like, no, no, like go look at the music video. Like that's like, that was the best way he could have entered totally uh, like that song like that's exactly as he did in the video so i didn't understand why people were you know hating on him why it became like an internet meme overnight for being upside down but i thought that was a clever i thought it was very clever too yeah i i like that so uh yeah it was a decent show they did they did all right um <laughs> that was the only part of the game i really watched and it was afterwards it was only after i saw the meme mm-hmm. uh, that i was like oh i better go check this out so i understand it um, but yeah, I've been, I think I've mentioned this before, but I, I've, I've had Daft Punk playing nonstop for the last, like probably six days, like gotcha. just, just good stuff. Yeah. Kind of electro kind of funk kind of, you know, got that EDM dancey, just, just good stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, I've had a lot of Daft Punk playing and they're, 
I mean, they're no longer a duo, but always a always a good always a good group to go to, at least for me. So that's what I had going since we last recorded Braden. Very good, very good. Um, well, yeah, thank you again for uh, for coming on, Danae. It was a pleasure, and we will look forward to part two for sure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And audience, obviously, if you are interested, let us know about any cases or specific um, skills or, or questions that you want to um, have some more insight how to, uh, how to deal with, more concrete insight how to deal with. Let us know at um, Speed Strength Show, Speed Strength Performance, or Learn, or Directed Strength. Um, Danae, or if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah. So right now you can find me, um, probably through fail better training is the best way. So www.failbettertraining.com. Um, you can find us on our website and I should mention too. So fail better training was founded by Ashley Kucher. Uh, it's a part of her dissertation program that she's now transformed into online program for athletes all around the world. So if you're interested in that, or if you've got questions about fail better training again, for your audience, check out our website bring that to us for the next episode and we'd be happy to happy to check those out my dog will make an appearance there we it's go yeah. i was just waiting so, for it <laughs> so yeah she's uh she's making an appearance but yes ashley kuchar founded feel better training and then lonnie silversides and myself are uh consultants with the program so definitely check us out there or on instagram you can also catch us there and all three of our bios are available online and on instagram so feel better training check us out Hopefully I'll be teamed up with a local physio clinic here in Edmonton to provide integrated support from a performance, mental performance standpoint, but those plans are still in the works. So no, no release there quite yet. No really. Yeah. No, yeah. no commitment just yet. Not yet. But yeah. So fail better training. That's where audience, that's where you can find. Yeah. You can find Danae if you have anything that you need to, you know, get figured out. Yeah. Or if you have um, direct questions that you want to email me, that's totally cool. You can email me directly at friends at ualberta.ca. So F-R-E-N-T-Z at ualberta.ca. And our emails are also available on Feel Better Training. So check us out. Nice. 100%. Very good. Then we'll look forward to part two. And until next time, that was the Speed Strength Show. Thanks for coming along, world. We'll see you next time. Peace.